Well, what a tremendous, tremendous blessing to my heart that our worship service has already been. I love the passage that we read in Zephaniah. It's just so clear, isn't it? That there is judgment for sin, and yet there's so much power and mercy to save in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that passage gives us so much hope that though we sin, God waits and He remains faithful to save us. And that's our hope. We run to Him. I read a quote recently. It says, religion says this, I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. The Gospel says, I messed up. I need to call my dad. Brothers and sisters, what a joy we have. To not say, I messed up, my dad's going to kill me. But through Christ, we say, I messed up. I need to go to my father. I need to go. Because there's forgiveness through his son. What a joy, what a blessing is ours this morning to know that from God's word. Let's pray. And then we'll go to John 5 this morning. Father, we have all sinned and our heart's desire now is to come to you through your son knowing that in him and through him is forgiveness is belonging is joy is life so father move us to yourself through your son this morning by the preaching of your word May we find Jesus present and sweet. That that would indeed be our heart. To run to the Father through the Son. As quickly and as directly as we possibly can. Thank you so much, Father, for opening the way for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving yourself as the way to the Father. And now, Holy Spirit, quicken our feet to run. Run to Jesus. For we pray it in His name. Amen. John chapter 5. Let's go back and read verses 39 through 47. And then seize upon verses 41 through 47 as our focus this morning. Remember, Jesus is in His first of in john's gospel really intense debates with the religious leaders of his day having healed the lame man on the sabbath day they're unhappy about that jesus uses that as the opportunity to prove that he is the son of god he's now called his witnesses that we finished looking at last week and now he closes his argument he says in verse 39 you search the scriptures because You think that in them you have eternal life. That is, in the Scripture itself. He says, but it is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses you would believe me. 
for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Truth is a two-edged sword. On the one side, it brings the freedom that truth inevitably brings. Wherever truth goes, there is freedom. On the other side, truth as a two-edged sword stings because it not only brings life on the one side, but it rebukes error on the other side. Now, many people wrongly assume that because Jesus has already said in John's Gospel, He didn't come to condemn, and He didn't come to judge, He came to bring life. They wrongly assume that Jesus never condemned what was wrong. Well, if He didn't come to condemn and He didn't come to judge, then certainly He would never have rebuked what was wrong. Well, if we are to say that, then we assume Jesus never spoke the truth. Because when you speak the truth, not only will it bring life and freedom on the one hand, it will bring rebuke and silencing of error on the other. Jesus, however, could only speak the truth. Therefore, while His purpose in His first coming was not to condemn, just by the very fact that He spoke the truth about who He was, rebuked the error of the religious leaders who denied who He was. And so in the sense that Jesus always speaks truth, brothers and sisters, Jesus is always rebuking error. Truth and error cannot coincide. And so while Jesus speaks truth, it automatically then means that he is rebuking error. Charles Spurgeon once famously said, let us be friends with one another, but let us never be friends with one another's error. And that was the heart of Jesus. To speak the truth that it might bring life, but at the same time, in speaking that same truth, Jesus rebuked error. And so this morning in our passage, we see that Jesus issues three condemnations as they flow from the truth that had been rejected by his Jewish detractors. Number one, there's a condemnation of false affirmation. A condemnation of false affirmation. As Jesus begins in verse 41, he locates the perennial problem for all mankind. And in so doing, he gives a contrast between himself and the self-righteous, proud, arrogant Jews with whom he is having to deal in this passage. What is that perennial problem? That perennial problem is the place in which you and I, as well as these people, look for our affirmation. For them in their day, for us in our day, in our flesh in our sinful fallenness we find and we seek from our affirmation and eventually our authority in the praise of men that's where fallen men look they look to one another to be validated they look to one another to be affirmed they look to one another to be glorified and in so doing and obtaining a certain level of that type of affirmation, authority. It was a really wise man. In fact, he's the wisest man, apart from Jesus Christ, who ever lived, that wrote addressing this. His name was Solomon. In Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25, Solomon puts it this way, the fear of man is a snare that leads to death. To long for the praise of men as these people did, will lead you eventually to the fear of man, which will lead you to death. We see that happening over and over again in the Scripture. That's why Nicodemus doesn't come in broad daylight. In John 3, Nicodemus comes when? At night. Because he fears what others will think. In our own day, in our own moment in history, we see Christian leaders capitulating and folding to the pressure of the culture over and over again. Why? They want the affirmation of men so that they gain position with men so that they can be granted temporal authority and popularity. 
And Jesus says very bluntly in verse 41, the difference between you and me is this. I do not derive my glory from men. I am not like you. I don't look outward. I look upward. My Father has validated me. The word that He has given validates me. The prophets whom He sent validate me. But it is ultimately the Father who is the source of my affirmation, approval, authority, and glory. Verse 41, Jesus uses a a term that's familiar to all of us. He says, I do not receive glory from men. The word glory here has a wide semantic range, a wide range of meaning. And it's all in view here. When you look the word glory up in an original dictionary, it gives you, you know, for most of us, it's been a long time since we opened a dictionary. And it has entry A and entry B and entry C and all the ways that the word can be used, right? You remember elementary school? And you have to find those meanings? Well, the way Jesus uses the word here, it it takes in all of those. The word glory starts with the idea that one has been recognized as possessing a status or a performance. The word glory simply means to be recognized to obtain a status because of one's performance. It eventually leads, as the word develops on, into worshiping and glorifying that one who has been recognized. And that is how Jesus uses the term here. I have that recognized status because of what I have done because of what I have taught you, and now I deserve your trust and your glory, your worship, your acceptance. But I don't ride on the coattails of what you say about me because I have something greater. And oh, by the way, again, unlike you, it doesn't come because I said so. It comes because the Father says so. In verse 31, Jesus has already told us, hasn't he? I alone, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. I cannot self-validate. It's an illegitimate recognition. Jesus says, however, my Father does validate me. My word validates me. My power validates me. My works validate validate me why didn't one of you heal that lame man sitting for 30 plus years by the pool of Bethsaida why didn't you do it when I did you could have if you possessed the same power and that is why people when they mock and slander and doubt and and reject and even curse Jesus Because he doesn't get his praise from men. He's unaffected by their cursing as well. It absolutely affects him in no degree. Other than to grieve his heart. It does not detract from Jesus. He's unaffected by their appraisal. And he is unaffected by their denial. Deny Jesus all you want. It does not change Jesus. One iota. Hate Jesus, kill Jesus, kill his preachers, kill his prophets, kill his people. It doesn't change him. This is condemnation to them. Jesus is not being unkind, but he is being very pointed. I do not receive my praise or my glory from men. The implication is... You do. Thus you will be affected by the ones who give you that validation. Jump down now to verse 43. Jesus says this, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. (laughs) However, if another comes in his own name, 
self-validated, you'll believe Him. You'll believe any ordinary guy that comes along, self-validates, you'll believe Him, you'll follow Him. But I've been sent by my Father, I've been validated by my Father, I do the works that only God can do, and yet you do not receive Me. Jesus narrows and becomes more specific in verse 43 as he presents truth that rebukes their error. The truth is this. He came in his father's name. He did what his father alone can do. The rebuke is this. You have not received it. And because you have not received the truth, you will believe a lie. Jesus uses a very intense form of the verb come here. I have come. It has happened. It is completed. It communicates the authority and power that He has. I've come. It's finalized. It's done. It's validated. And yet they can't see it. Why can't they see it? Why do any of us struggle to see the truth? Why is it that we maybe for a time reject the truth? What causes that? One thing. Pride. Pride. And the prouder the person, the more exalted you would think that person is. Have you ever met somebody who's just extremely proud? And they're here to tell you, why Jesus isn't the Messiah, and why your faith is in vain, and why it's such a joke, and why blah, 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 blah. Their pride doesn't make them bigger. Their pride has not made them more intelligent. It has limited them and made them very, very small. They're not more grandiose. They're not bigger. They don't understand more. They understand less. Because in trying to make themselves sound big and intelligent and wise, all they can do is repeat their own pride. They can't get out of the prison of their pride. It is them, 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 them. Proud people are not grandiose people. They are the smallest people. Trapped in the prison of their own pride. Unable to get over themselves. How can you be ruler of the world when you can't leave your own prison? Jesus is making that abundantly clear. They do nothing. They have no power because they can do nothing. They are only dependent on upon themselves and their own self-validation. They are trying to validate heavenly things with earthly resources. And Jesus says, it cannot happen. In fact, you're in a worse position than your forefathers. Do you remember your forefathers down there in that little place known as Egypt? You see, they had an impossible task given to them, didn't they? They were told to make bricks without straw. You're in a worse position than they are. You're trying to make bricks without not only straw, but without clay as well because of your pride. You've got nothing. But I am everything. And yet you reject me. You are in more bondage than the children of Israel were when Moses led them out. That's how deep this runs, guys. But you can't see it for your pride. If you'd believed the truth, you would have received me. But you don't. And here is the proof. Here is the real capstone of your problem. If, and, and the word if is to signal a probable event. This is probably going to happen and we know that it actually did because many people came to the jewish nation in jesus day and shortly after jesus day claiming to be in the messiah and guess what they did they followed them 
History is littered with failed messiahs. And Jesus says, there is going to come a time. This is not hearsay. This is going to happen. But when another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. What does it mean to come in your own name? To be self-validated. One who is self-authenticated, as one writer said. Though his power is lacking, though his authority is lacking, you will still believe him because he says he is. Try that at the bank tomorrow. Yes, I'd like to withdraw $10 million. The last name is Rockefeller. They'll laugh you out of town. But I said I identify as a Rockefeller. You're not a Rockefeller. Your last name says Fairchild. Far cry. But yet, in this case, Jesus says, You'll, you, you, in your pride, in your pride, so blinded by how small, how limited, how hopeless, how hypocritical, how sad you're actually going to accept that man at the same time that you reject me. Hey, when that person comes, ask him to call witness of works. Did he heal the man by the pool of Bethsaida? Did he know without being told about the life that the woman at the well had lived? Is he about to feed 5,000 with what would suffice for one man's lunch? Can he do that? No, he cannot. But you'll receive him. Because of your pride, because of your self-love, because of your desire to self-validate. If there was ever a mutual admiration society, this is it. It's the good old boy network. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You validate me and I'll validate you. It reminds me of honorary degrees. Tell you what, I'll give you one if you'll give me one. And we'll call each other doctor. You laugh. I grew up under a pastor who paid for one of those. Literally. So that he could be called doctor. Edward Klink says this, they were drenched in their own imaginative God. Oh, let's see, we'll imagine he's a God. Yes, we'll call you Messiah. Great. Where'd the authority come from? Well, us, of course. The Messiah Validating Society, of which I'm a founding member. Jesus mocks them. He says, no, how tragic. That is so fake. You've rejected what's real for something so terribly fake. The tragedy is elevated, however, when Jesus brings something worse to the surface. Go back now to verse 42. There's a problem of self-validation. False validation. False affirmation. But look what Jesus says in verse 42. And this cuts straight to the heart. But I know you. Again, he came. That's an intensified reality. And now he knows finally, fully, completely, perfectly. Jesus knows their hearts. This is one group of people who should never use the phrase, well, God knows my heart. Because notice what Jesus finds in their heart. You do not have the love of God in yourselves. Uh-oh. We were just exposed. And remember, He knows and He knows perfectly. There's no heart hidden from the gazing eye of Jesus. We need to take note of that. There's not a heart in here, not a mind in here that Jesus does not perfectly know. Sometimes better than we know it. And he says, here's what I have found in your heart. 
There is religion on the outside, but there is an absence of love for God on the inside. And so Jesus issues his second condemnation. It is a condemnation of absence. The first is false affirmation, followed by an absence of what should be there. You are filled with the wrong thing and absolutely void of the right thing. This is the work of truth's indictment. There is a glaring absence here of something that should be there. These people are willfully ignorant. Jesus is perfectly fully knowledgeable. He knows. And what he knows, according to verse 42, is this. They are wholly, completely void without the love of God. Now, listen, brothers and sisters, unless we think that this is just another thing that these people can hear and dismiss out of hand and move on with their life, it is not, because things for them are going from bad to worse. Go back to verse 38 with me. Look what he says in verse 38. You do not have His Word abiding in you. Strike one. Go down to verse 40. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. No Christ. Strike two. Now we come to verse 42. You don't even love God. Strike three. So, well, wouldn't they have just been so callous they wouldn't have cared? Well, that might be true. Except for this. That a conscientious religious Jewish person lived their entire life under the understanding that the greatest commandment they had to follow is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And Jesus looks at him and says, you don't have any of that. So we're not even right with Moses. We're not even right with the law. No, you are not. Because the greatest commandment is this, to love God. Jesus will say in Matthew 22, verse 36, when one of these same types of religious leaders ask him, Excuse me, can you please tell us what is the greatest commandment? Hoping to trip Jesus up. And Jesus perfectly answers from Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And Jesus says to these people, you are really religious, but you don't love God. How this must have stung There's already a wound, and now Jesus seems to be, as it were, pressing salt into the wound. Revealing what pride has concealed. They don't even love God. You know, that's going to come up again in the New Testament with Jesus, but not with a religious leader. It'll come up with one of his own disciples. Peter. Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Lord, I love you. Peter, do you even love me? I don't know that you even love me, Peter. Pride is such a deceptive and destructive thing. And Jesus' truth, who Jesus is and what He says and how He says it, That perfect knowledge reveals us, doesn't it? And brothers and sisters, that is not a bad thing. That is a gracious thing. That is like going to to the doctor with a pain. And the doctor is saying, you know, let's send you for an MRI. And the MRI reveals a massive malignant tumor. We don't leave the MRI and curse the machine and say, how dare you? We run back to the surgeon and the surgeon says, I got bad news and I've got good news. Number one, bad news, you've got cancer. Good news is we can remove it. 
You don't curse the MRI machine. You don't curse the surgeon. You thank God that they got it. Jesus is not trying to kill them or crush them. But this is grace that God's truth would reveal what we are. And reveal false affirmation. And reveal false professions of love for God and an absence of a true love for God. Why? So that we can turn to Him. The good news is you're a sinner. The, uh, the bad news is you're a sinner. The good news is Christ died for sinners. In fact, that's the only kind of person He died for. He didn't die for the religiously proud. He died for the broken and the humble. Perfect knowledge has just revealed the greatest violation in their mind, and that is they don't love God. And listen, if James 2.10 says that the whole law can be broken by offending in one point of the law, how much more by violating the heart of the law altogether? They've done this. And now this leads us to the apex of the tragedy. In verse 44, The accusation that truth brings in its ultimate condemnation of accusation. That's the third point. A condemnation of their accusation. Though Jesus is gentle and mild, lowly and meek, He is also pointed and unrelenting. He asks them a question, as He so often does, these questions that pierce to the very core of one's being. How is it? How can you believe? How can you believe? How is this even going to be possible when you receive glory from one another from the Mutual Admiration Society? You've got honorary PhDs ad nauseum. You receive glory from one another and yet you do not seek the glory that is from the only God. How do you think you're going to believe me? Because no man will validate me. The language is actually quite sharp and I will illustrate the language with a familiar quote and I've often used it kind of joking. But it's exactly what Jesus says here. It is literally interpreted. How do people like you? There's a man who's now with the Lord who once famously said, What's wrong with you people? That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. How do people like you expect to believe? How how is that even going to work? The tone of that statement captures the reality that these religious inquisitors are in deep trouble. Jesus is saying, unless you change your trajectory, belief for you is not even an option. It will never happen from your current trajectory and your current line of reasoning. Jesus poses the question, how can people who believe the lies that come from the false validation and affirmation of men in order to receive false glory that they are really incapable of ever giving in any meaningful way, how will they be saved? How will they believe? To sharpen the point a little more, the word should be rendered, how can you begin to believe? How will you even start? You Remember, these are men who have devoted their entire life to religion. And Jesus says, how can you start believing? You don't love God. You've never even taken the first step towards God. And how do you plan on doing that with self-affirmation? The answer is clear. They can't. It's a rhetorical question. We we can't, Lord. Jesus points out very clearly that this is the issue at hand. It is explicitly. It is this. You're focused on the praise of men, which gives you what men can give. And you reject the witness of God Himself, which gives what only God can give. There's a bit of Sarcasm also tucked away in verse 44. 
Jesus says that their validation is from one another. Language scholars have been quick to point out that Jesus leaves the source of their affirmation unknown in order to emphasize its real value. How many of you have ever had someone come to you in the workplace and say, you know, so and so, there's, there's people who are unhappy with you, and you say, who, who exactly is saying this? Well, you know, really we couldn't say. And you know what we do with those kinds of things? File 13. It's worth the source you give it. Jesus is saying, your affirmation is so inconsequential, it can't even be named. If you've got something to say, tell them to say it. Name it. Show me the source. Cite it. Footnote it. Bring him before me. Let's talk. You can't even do that because your witness means zilch. It has zero bearing on me. Why then are you listening to it? It's as valuable and it's as reliable as its unnamed source. Don't you hate that when you're watching the news? Unnamed sources. How do I know you didn't just make that up? That's what Jesus is telling them. How do I know you didn't just make this up? Bring something substantial. Rather, you should be seeking the one and only God. Notice what he says. The true glory is from the only God. Again, we find the accusation and the condemnation drawn directly from the heart of their own religion. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The only God. Ask Him. And again in Deuteronomy 5.7 Have no other gods before me. Why can't you have other gods before me? Because there are no other gods before me. I'm the God who brought you up out of Israel. Or out of Egypt. Into the land which I have promised you. I am the only God and I have proof. Quit looking at false sources. What is Jesus saying here? Here's the net of verse 44. If you want to write this down, here's the heart of it. Not only are you idolaters, you are the idols. Put that together. You worship yourself. You make the idol. It looks just like you. And then you turn around and you worship it. And then you go get all your friends to come sign off on it. And then tomorrow, you'll go to their house and sign off on their idol that looks just like them. Yet you are duty bound. Because he is your creator the one who reveals truth to you and your only hope of redemption, you are duty-bound to worship the only God, not all these little idols. You have not done so, therefore you have failed in totality. You see, brothers and sisters, eternal life, salvation is a sum total game. There is no percentage score given you are either in christ or you are out of christ you either believe him or you reject him there is none of this cultural christianity in which so many of us have been reared where we say well they're fine christian people and then you find out they deny who jesus really is or some cardinal point of doctrine that leads to salvation and well we can still call them christian brothers and sisters because they're just such fine salty no it is all of Christ or none of Christ. There's no compromise. There's no, well, I got 70% right, I'll go to heaven. No, it's either all or nothing. You accept Him or you reject Him. The lines are so clear and Jesus is saying, you have failed in totality. You failed in totality. 
And then abruptly he moves to verse 45. Look there. This goes back to his mission in chapter 3, verse 17. You say, man, this is hard. This is hard. But it's reality. And eternity is at stake. And we dare not mince words when eternity is on the line. Jesus moves abruptly to verse 45 and he says, in essence, don't take my word for it. He says, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. Remember what I said in chapter 3, verse 17. I have not come to condemn, but to save. I'll leave the condemning up to Moses. Whoa. Jesus just flips their star witness against them. Moses is going to be the one who accuses you. That doesn't mean that they are beyond the condemnation of Jesus. He certainly could condemn them. But Jesus points out for their benefit, by the way, their benefit that it's Moses condemning them. Don't take my word for it. I'm here to save you. And oh, by the way, I'm still here to save you. But first, I've got to show you your error so that you know you need to be saved, what you need to be saved from. That is yourself. So I'm going to let Moses condemn you. Because Moses wrote about me, verse 46. And if you say you believe Moses, then you'll believe me. Because Moses just laid the foundation. He paved the highway. He made it possible for you to believe me. So if you do believe Moses, which you say you do, then you will have to believe me. Otherwise, you don't even believe me. You don't even believe Moses. You stand, stand condemned in your unbelief. And you're condemned by your own hero. The one in whom you hope. The one in whom you have set your hope. And he said, what do you mean set your hope in Moses? Go back to verse 39. You search the scriptures, meaning the ones Moses wrote, thinking that in them, just by studying them, you'll have eternal life. But as we discovered last week, that's not it at all. It's only in Christ that we have eternal life. But these do point to him. And so he, he brings that back to mind for them here in verse 46. Moses gave you the foundation. He gave you the law in which had you believed it, had searched it diligently enough, it would yield for you the picture that led to me so that you would believe me and receive me. But you don't really believe Moses as it turns out. You believe in yourself. By the time Jesus is on the scene, over 700 laws were added to Moses' law. Moses didn't approve. God certainly didn't inspire. But why did they do those? So that that made them look better. Have you ever met a politician who voted for laws that benefit themselves? No. Have you ever met a Pharisee who passed a law to make himself look better? 700 plus. And by the way, isn't it interesting? They always passed laws they knew they could keep. Kind of like a preacher preaching on sins that he knows he's not committing. So he doesn't have to be honest with the Lord. Jesus says, that's exactly what you're doing. That is exactly what you're doing. Patting yourself on the back all the way to the synagogue. Claiming to love Moses and believe Moses and to have read Moses and to have studied Moses. And yet the thing that Moses wrote about, you can't even see. And I'm right here in front of you. Moses' word is witness enough. Which though memorized by you is still not enough to cause you to believe. So Jesus closes with verse 47. 
And again, it reveals an utter lack of faith, an absence of faith. And Jesus doesn't say it with glee, and neither should we. But, if you do not believe His writings, how will you believe my words? How, how is that going to be possible? Because that's why I'm here. So that you would believe. But if you won't accept step one, and you can't go on to step two. You don't even believe Moses. How are you not going to... How are you going to believe... This is Easter week. You'll be reminded that Later, Jesus' life, in this very week leading up to His crucifixion, He stands on the mount overlooking Jerusalem and He weeps over these men. And He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you under My wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And Jesus wept. He's not harsh with the truth, but He is blunt with the truth. And He desires that these men would believe Him. He came to save. Like the rich man and Lazarus, you'll remember from Luke chapter 16. The rich man dies and he goes to the place of torment. And he's crying out from the place of torment to Abraham, please, please send one of the prophets to my brothers so that they might believe and not come to this place of torment. And do you remember Abraham's words? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. It's enough. Because it points to Jesus. Let them hear what's already written. They don't need a new experience. They don't need a fresh revelation from God. They don't need anything. They need Moses and the prophets. And they have them, but they have rejected them. The very thing Jesus is saying here. So what's the problem? The problem is not a lack of revelation. The problem is a lack of submission. It's not a lack of truth that we don't know. It is a lack of responding to the truth we do know. That is our problem. The problem is that not that God hasn't spoken clearly. He has. The problem is that we have not believed fully. That Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. That Jesus is the way. And Jesus is the truth. And Jesus is the life. Singular, singular, singular. He is the only name given among men under heaven whereby you must be saved. And apart from Him, Nothing will save you. And so Jesus closes with verse 47, sheathes his sword for the time being, and moves on. Leaving, no doubt, many, the majority of these people, at least at this time, in utter unbelief. He speaks the truth. He speaks it boldly, bluntly, but in love. And he moves on. 
Dear friends, don't be one of the ones Jesus leaves behind with truth that is yet to be believed. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never called upon Him as Savior, call upon Him today. Believe that He is the Son of God. Believe that He is who He said He is. That He did what He said He would do. That He lived a perfect life in your place and kept the law where we do nothing but break it. Remember James 2.10. He that offends the law in one point is guilty of breaking all the law. And turn to Jesus Christ. He alone saves. And He alone does save. Father, thank You for the Word of Your Son this morning recorded for us in John's Gospel. May we take it to heart. May we believe it. May we submit to it. May You change us by it. Thank You for truth that both frees and gives life and truth that prior to that reveals a lack of faith so that we might be brought to the end of ourselves and our pride and humbly to the feet of Jesus where we receive mercy and grace to help in our greatest need, the need of salvation from our sins and release from Your condemnation. Father, if there's one who has not believed the good news of that message, cause them to believe today. Bring them to Jesus. Throw them down at His feet. Cause them to cry out to Him, confessing Him to be who He said He is and believing what He's done. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.